The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. Before we have this national health insurance scheme, people are afraid to go to see doctors, afraid to go to hospitals because they don't have money to pay for the treatment. But since the government introduced the national health insurance system, more and more Indonesians access health facilities. The Indonesian government has increased health spending quite significantly during the pandemic, as one would expect. The big question is really whether that signals a change that will stick in the future or whether it will just prove to be a temporary thing and once the crisis has abated, once concern about COVID-19 has started to dissipate, will things return to their previous state? In this episode, the politics of health in Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Well before the COVID-19 pandemic took hold in Indonesia, the country's health policies were already keenly contested politically. The fall of Suharto's New Order regime, a little over two decades ago, galvanised a recognition of the need for reform in many sectors of Indonesian society, including the area of health policy in the world's fourth most populous country. The right to health for all Indonesians and the healthcare resources needed to uphold that right gained real currency with the political ascendancy of more progressive, populist and technocratic forces. And yet entrenched interests, including predatory elites with political and military ties, are now reasserting themselves to thwart changes being sought to further improve the health prospects of ordinary Indonesians. So what's at stake? And who are the various stakeholders in Indonesia's health policy debate? Why can't Indonesia seem to shake off the older predatory elites undermining more equitable health provision? How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the dynamics? And to what degree do the politics of health in Indonesia reflect the vitality of the country's broader democracy? Joining me to discuss the politics of health in Indonesia are development economist Professor Andrew Rosser of Asia Institute and public policy expert Dr. Luki Jani of Universitas Indonesia. Welcome back, Andrew, and welcome, Luki. Nice to be here. Nice meeting you, Peter. Now, Luki and Andrew, we all know that a lot has changed since the end of the New Order Suharto regime back in around about 1998. A lot has changed in the health area as well in Indonesia. Luki, can we start our conversation just sketching in some of the broad contours of how it operates today? So could we start just by describing how big is it and how many people are involved in terms of the health industries within Indonesia? Yes, as we know, after the fall of uh, Suharto, health issues become more and more demanding, both by uh, public as well as by uh, health practitioners. We know that uh, around 60% of Indonesian population are located in Java Island and 40% located in the rest of islands like Sumatra, Kalimantan, uh, Sulawesi, Maluku, and Papua, of course. So the health structure in Indonesia, we have uh, roughly 10,000 uh, puskesmas 
community health centers located at the sub-district level. Puskesmas serve more than two villages. And we know that almost 40% of uh, Puskesmas are situated in Java Island. But the ratio, in fact, the Java Island is the lowest compared to other islands because of the density of population. In terms of doctors and nurses, most of them are also located in Java. But again, the ratio is Java is far below other islands. This is the uh, main challenges faced by Indonesian government, especially the health ministry, how to deploy health practitioners and also to establish new health facilities more evenly, uh, not only in Java, but also in outer Java and also in the very remote areas such as islands. But uh, we do have interesting development recently, uh, started in 2011, where the Indonesian government at that time embraced the universal health coverage. The government tried to cover all the uh, Indonesian population. It's supposed to be ended in 2019. Two years ago, we had 100% of population should be covered with this health insurance scheme. But due to certain condition or situation, it could not materialize. Based on data available in 2021, only around 83% of uh, Indonesian population has this uh, health insurance. Luki, if I were visiting you there in Jakarta, and I had to go to a big public hospital to perhaps the emergency outpatients department to fix up my cut foot, what would I discover there compared perhaps with a big public hospital here in Australia? Very similar? Yeah, if uh, you are in Jakarta, I think it would not be a problem if you get injured, for example, or if you have uh, illness, then you can choose any hospital that you wanted to attend to. But the situation will be very much different if you are in outer Java, especially in a remote area, well, at least you need to reach for this Puskesmas at the Kachamatan level. At least you have to travel an hour to get medical attention. You mentioned health insurance. Just take us a bit further on that. If I do front up to an outpatient department in a big public hospital, is that all free? If I go to my GP, what is the health insurance system there like? Uh, basically, the uh, system uh, works uh, very much similar to the system used in Australia, for example, or in the uh, UK. Uh, in fact, our health uh, insurance mimic what the UK system, the NHS system. So you can enter the uh, public hospital, for example, and you get treatment. But uh, due to the... Uh, Financial uh, restriction. Now, a few diseases cannot be uh, treated using that health insurance. Uh, you have to pay out of pocket. How is it funded, Luki? Is it funded through the tax system? I picked up from you a moment ago, perhaps not. It depends uh, if you are belong to the category of poor people or people who does not have monthly income, for example. Uh, you are working in informal sectors, so you're entitled to be covered by the state. So the insurance payment will be covered by the state. But if you are wealthier, 
then uh, you have to pay the monthly uh, insurance premium by yourself. Andrew, that brings us to the private and public split in health systems. Thinking of the one here in Australia, we've got a rather badly bolted together public-private system here. What's it like in Indonesia? What are the similarities and the differences between public and private healthcare in Indonesia? Well, look, Indonesia, I guess, historically has relied very heavily on private financing of healthcare and relied very heavily on private health providers. Out-of-pocket payments historically have been a really, really important source of health financing. And that is, of course, beginning to change now. And in particular, it's changing as a result of the establishment of a national health insurance system. But according to recent data, out-of-pocket payments still account for something in the vicinity of 37 to 38% of total health expenditure. Government uh, accounts for around about 45% and the remainder is uh, other forms of private financing. So even with the sort of developments that we've seen in recent year, um, the government is only accounting for a bit less than half of total health expenditure. Probably one of the key differences between Indonesia's health system with regards to the public-private split and, say, a country like Australia is that doctors um, who, in most cases, are civil servants and required to work in the public system are given permission to moonlight in the private system as a way of supplementing their income. So it's very common for doctors who work in facilities like uh, Puskesmas or public hospitals to have private practices or alternatively to work in private hospitals where uh, they can of course earn a lot more money than they do in the public system. When you and Lukey talk about out-of-pocket expenses is that in direct parallel to the way we experience out-of-pocket expenses here in Australia the gap payments or are they total payments if someone goes to a particular doctor is it a total payment with no component of bulk billing for example Lukey can you address that Yes there are two components of out of the pocket payment first is related to the uh, immediate hospital coverage uh, so for example if uh, you are attending the uh, hospital, then you uh, wanted to get non-patent medicine, you do not have to pay anything. But if you wanted to get a better medicine, for example, which is not uh, listed uh, under the uh, insurance scheme, so you have to pay for that medicine. And also some treatment, uh, surgery, do not covered by this health insurance scheme. Uh, the second one is related to access to the health facilities. So, for example, you still have to pay a transportation fees to get you to the uh, uh, hospital and you have to pay for other expenses. In, in Indonesia, there is a, a common culture, for example, if you are being uh, hospitalized, so your families, your sibling or your parents will accompany you in the in the hospital at your bedside then they certainly need to pay for their meals for the transportation etc cetera, etc cetera. so the second type of out of pocket money is very much related to indonesian custom 
Lukey, I think it'll help our discussion since we're going to be focusing on the idea of the right to health care and the right to equitable health care, just to compare what it was like before 1998 during Suharto's New Order regime and how that evolved after the fall of that regime, and particularly, I guess, in the latter years, how the Asian financial crisis modulated the change in people's attitudes and the practicalities of healthcare in Indonesia. Could you sketch that out for us? Uh, yes. Uh, before we have this national health insurance scheme, people are afraid to go to the hospital or to go to the puskesmas because they cannot afford to pay uh, for their uh, medication. We uh, do have a saying here, uh, sakit sedikit jatuh miskin. In, in English, it's if you are get sick, then you get poor. And therefore, people are uh, afraid to go to see doctors, afraid to go to hospitals because they don't have money to pay for the treatment. But since the uh, government introduced the uh, national health insurance system, more and more people access uh, health facilities. And in fact, due to this euphoria, uh, in the early days of the uh, enactment of this scheme, back in 2014, 2015, people go to the hospital even though they don't have a serious illness because they feel that they are covered anyway. So uh, there's no risk to go to hospital to meet a doctor. Because of that, in the early period of this uh, scheme, many hospitals become jam-packed with patients, and it also creates a burden, especially for doctors and nurses, because they have to deal with many patients which they do not have uh, before. Peter, if um, I can just add um, one point here, I think it's important to understand that historically, the health sector has been neglected by government. Um, when the new order fell in 1998, I think everyone, even the most conservative economists, recognised that Indonesia had underspent on health. And so part of the reform process in Indonesia since the fall of the new order has been simply to increase health spending. And that increase in health spending has helped to make things like the National Health Insurance Scheme a possibility. But really, you know, health has been a neglected sector and it's been, um, I guess, most obviously sort of demonstrated by the relatively low amounts of money that the government has spent on health, but also it's reflected in, you know, data with regards to the Indonesian health workforce. I mean, even today, the size of the Indonesian health workforce has grown quite significantly in the last two to three decades. But even today, um, Indonesia only has 0.46 physicians per thousand head of population. That's less than half what the WHO recommends. The WHO recommends one physician per thousand head of population. I mean, back in 1992, which was fairly late in the new order period, for instance, the country only had 0.15 physicians per thousand population. As I understand it in Australia today, we have we have over three physicians per thousand population, just to put those figures in some sort of perspective. So the sorts of issues that Lukey is talking about, people's reluctance to go to hospital, um, a sense that you would um, uh, face catastrophic health expenditure if you did have to go to 
to hospital. You know, these are reflections of the neglect of the health system by government and an unwillingness to invest in health in general. Andrew, am I right in picking up from what Lukey's described to us already, that it is a rather uneven mosaic across that vast archipelago of Indonesia? Now, we understand remoteness and separation between islands, etc., must play a role. But is part of that mosaic also about class, about socioeconomic uh, divisions, etc.? I think it would be fair to say that there are some persistent inequities in access to healthcare across the country, notwithstanding the sorts of changes that we've seen in Indonesia since the fall of the new order. You know, to provide you with one indication of that, if you look at the availability of doctors per thousand population by region in Indonesia, it's actually relatively even, with the exception of Maluku, East Nusa Tenggara, Uh, and Papua, where doctors are really, really scarce. And the scarcity of doctors is even more pronounced if we're talking about specialist doctors. So in that particular part of Indonesia, which is the most remote part of Indonesia, some of the poorest parts of the country are, are located in those particular areas, the availability of doctors is really quite scarce. You also see some pronounced differences in terms of health outcomes. Indonesia's made really significant progress in recent decades in terms of improving life expectancy. In 2012, Indonesians lived on average to 70 years of age. That's up from something in the 40s in the 1960s, so a really significant improvement. But in that year, 2012, that average hid some really quite significant differences across different parts of the country. So whereas people in Jogjakarta, which is a relatively, you know, it's a major city and it's quite central, it's got good services, a relatively large middle class, people were living on average to 74 years of age, but in West Sulawesi province, they were only living to 62.8 years of age. I gather there's um, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that socioeconomic factors also shape the ability of people to access healthcare. There's been a recent study published in um, BMJ Open, for instance, which has pointed to the influence of socioeconomic background on people's ability to access, in particular, secondary and preventive care. The establishment of the Puskesmas system has put primary healthcare in the reach of most people, although in the more far-flung parts of the country, people have to travel larger distances to get uh, access to any sort of public health facility. But nevertheless, the Puskesmas system has been reasonably successful at putting primary care in the reach of most people. But when it comes to secondary care and preventive care, it's a different story. Andrew, we're describing the fall of the Sahata regime, the end of that regime, the new order period, as a major inflection point in Indonesian history. We've talked about technocratic forces, progressive forces, and populist forces. Who were these people? And was the education system before the end of the Sahato regime part of producing different cohorts of people that took up the reins of moving the country forward more progressively? I think the the crucial thing about the Asian financial crisis and the fall of the new order is that it led to a realignment in power relations between competing elements in Indonesia's 
political economy. I mean, up until that point, um, people used to talk about the Indonesian political system as being dominated by predatory elites, by oligarchic forces and the like. And poor people, the middle class, NGOs, uh, even government technocrats being largely excluded from decision-making. That changed to a significant extent following the Asian financial crisis and and fall of the new order. And in a way that served to provide a bit of impetus to a process of health sector reform that we've started to outline in broad terms. I mean, a number of these elements that we're talking about were in existence during the new order period, but they just didn't have much say in policymaking in general or in health policy in particular. Um, The technocrats, a lot's been written about the technocrats. Um, And here what people are talking about is a group of economists who are ideologically predisposed to favour free markets over government intervention. They played a really crucial role in uh, the management of the economic crisis of the mid-1960s and uh, and the mid-1980s, the the time of the end of the oil boom. They were crucial actors in forging the establishment of the social safety net schemes at the time of the Asian financial crisis. And importantly, they were, whilst predisposed towards fiscal conservatism, they could see that Indonesia underinvested in health and that health spending had to go up and they were amenable to that being achieved through targeted forms of assistance uh, aimed at helping the poor access health services and even eventually to the establishment of a system of, of universal health coverage. The progressive elements, you know, and here we're, we're talking largely about NGO activists committed to human rights and in particular the the right to health, but also progressive elements within professional organisations like the Doctors Association, the Nursing Association and and so on, and some academics, public health academics. Um, You know, these groups are all there under the new order, but they just didn't have much say. With the fall of the new order and the shift to a more democratic political system, they started to become more visible, more involved in policy making. Um, policy spaces opened up that they could access. What we often refer to as uh, sort of populist figures. I mean, again, were there during um, the new order period, but were relatively marginal to decision making. They like progressive elements, were able to take advantage of democratisation, which created an incentive for them to promote redistributive policies as a way of trying to win votes at election time. And some of them, particularly at the local level, initially, subsequently at the national level, latched on to health as an area of reform through which they thought they could win uh, a few extra votes at, at election time. And, and health insurance especially was um, was crucial in that respect. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read, and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au.
sbs.com.au. I'm Peter Clark, and I'm joined by Dr. Luki Jani of Universitas Indonesia and Professor Andrew Rosser of Asia Institute. We're talking about how competing political actors hold sway over Indonesia's approach to healthcare. Luki, in a paper that you and Andrew presented quite recently to a conference at the Australian National University, within that paper you describe, and just picking up on what Andrew just said then, you describe five broad groups of actors, technocratic forces, progressive forces, and populist forces. What we haven't really dug into yet are what we've already called the predatory elites. I want to know more about who they are, and I'm assuming some of them come from the large and established families. And also, what role do workers' groupings and farmers' groupings play in these interactions politically amongst the various actors? Yeah, if we are talking about the uh, predatory elites in Indonesia, we uh, certainly have to take into account the conglomerates, the handful of uh, very wealthy uh, industrialist families, which they actually, during the uh, oil boom and uh, in the mid-80s, they enjoy the economic development and the economic policy pursued by the New Order regime. They established a cozy relationship with their uh, regime. Uh, they have a privilege, they have political uh, protection, and also a security protection that they can grow their businesses. But in the early uh, 90s, where the uh, internal dynamics between Islamist groups and also Islamist groups within the bureaucracy and military against the nationalist uh, element uh, within the bureaucracy and military increased. So these conglomerates have to choose which side that they wanted to play with. And prior to the uh, Asian financial crisis, there were several uh, huge demonstrations back in mid-90s in, in Jakarta in particular, and also in other industrialized uh, cities like in Surabaya. So this gives a strong message to these conglomerates that the new order era will come to end. So they need to realign themselves. They see that the growing middle class, especially university students, uh, NGO activists, public academy become more and more prominent. They become directly criticizing the new order policy. And when the uh, Asian financial crisis hit Indonesia, most people, especially the poor, become angry and they took part in the demonstration. The, the conglomerates see that the new order uh, regime, especially Suharto, at that time cannot give protection for them as before. So these conglomerates, some of them, of course, they try to support the uh, demonstration and also progressive elements within the bureaucracy and the ministers at that time. After the fall of Suharto, there was a major constitutional reform and uh, much of the Indonesian uh, political system and political configuration become liberalized. Uh, so, for example, governor, mayor, and district head, and even a president should be popularly vote through the direct election. 
So this changed the incentive of politician, the populist element within the uh, polity, because they do not have to rely on a blessing of Suharto as before, or they don't have to establish a special relationship with the Chandana family to be elected as governor, for example, to be elected as mayor. But then they have to seek uh, votes from the constituency. So this also changed how they uh, see uh, issues, especially issues related to poor people or, or the vast majority of uh, Indonesian voters, uh, namely health, education, and other social issues. And this social issue become more and more gaining ground because many politicians use this as an instrument to attract votes. So this combination of change in uh, our political system and the realignment of these conglomerates lead the way to the more progressive social policy. And Luki, organized labor and the farmers groupings, what roles have they been playing in improving health services in Indonesia? Yeah, this is interesting element of reform. Initially, the labor union wanted to uh, reform the so-called uh, Jamsostek law. Uh, Jamsostek is kind of like a labor insurance, specifically designed for formal labor. But then several progressive individuals and organizations were able to convince the uh, leadership of labor unions that the union can push forward broader and progressive social policy, such as this health insurance scheme. So then the uh, leadership of labor union see this opportunity and they abandon the idea to reform the Jamsostek law and they pursue discussion of this a universal health coverage scheme. This is also because the labor uh, union, as we know in Indonesia, is relatively small compared to in uh, South Korea, for example, because it is not mandatory for workers to uh, join a labor union. Therefore, the leadership of labor unions see this as an opportunity also to enlarge their membership include the semi-formal or informal workers if they are able to give them uh, something that will cover their health problems. Andrew, as we try to get a clearer picture of the actual political dynamics around the health system in Indonesia, let's talk about health insurance because that's been a very contentious and highly contended area, hasn't it? What do we learn about political dynamics and how the politics actually modulate the health system in Indonesia when we look at the health insurance history? I think it's important to understand here that, you know, the establishment of a national health insurance scheme, you know, which has been criticised on uh, a lot of different grounds. It's a system that's got a lot of bugs in it, uh, a whole lot of problems that need to be addressed. But its very establishment is really quite a remarkable achievement and particularly the fact that it is built on the principle of universal health coverage and under the new order you simply didn't have a system of universal health coverage what you had was a series of separate schemes providing some level of assistance 
often involving government subsidies to particular groups of people. So there was a, a scheme especially set up to provide health insurance to uh, civil servants known as ASCES. ASABRI was a scheme that did the same thing for members of the military. Uh, Lukey's just mentioned uh, JAMSOSTEC, which was, uh, as he said, a, a, a labour insurance scheme. So those particular elements of society in Indonesia were provided with some sort of limited, some sort of basic coverage, whereas um, everybody else was really left to the vagaries of of the marketplace. So the establishment of um, a national health insurance scheme built on the principle of uh, of universal health coverage really was quite a, uh, a remarkable achievement once you consider the history here. And I think in terms of the politics, it's important to understand that these these predatory elites that we've talked about have been really a key obstacle to precisely this sort of change and other sorts of change in Indonesian health policy that might serve to promote better fulfilment of the right to health because they haven't really had significant interests in the establishment of such schemes and in fact such schemes have if anything threatened their interests you know when it comes to health spending for instance i mean the interests of predatory elites really lie in minimal expenditure on the social sectors you know they've got a much greater interest in public money being spent on things like infrastructure or subsidies for this or that uh, product rather than on the social sectors you know a key determinant a key causal factor for Indonesia's low spending on health historically has been precisely the interests of these sorts of predatory elites. At the same time, you know, these elites, because they, you know, they represent a nexus or a coming together of political, bureaucratic and corporate elements. You know, it's been these interests that have benefited most from the privatisation of the health sector and in particular the relatively lucrative end of the health market in the form of private hospitals providing uh, relatively high quality care to members of the middle class and the the elites those sorts of operations have very often been owned by the major conglomerates which have very very strong political connections and so on and so really the story of the politics of health policy in Indonesia since the fall of the, the new order has to a significant extent been a story of progressive or technocratic elements confronting the interests and the agendas of predatory elites to try and achieve some sort of change. And if we discuss electoral democracy, electoral politics in Indonesia, is the health insurance area because it lies at the service delivery sector, I suppose, of the the whole picture, is that more important in terms of electoral politics and people using it electorally during campaigns? It certainly was in the first decade, decade and a half of the post-New Order period. A really key sort of decision that had to be taken early on was whether Indonesia would go for more of a US-style managed care-type model of health financing or one built more on a sort of European model of of social insurance. And in the end, that issue got settled in favour of the social insurance model. But you had all of these different initiatives emerge, and in part they did so because 
local politicians, sometimes, you know, who came from health backgrounds themselves. The probably primary example in this respect is the formable party of Jambrana in Bali, Igade Wanasa, who was a dentist, a medical professional, understood health systems, um, had some insight into, into health financing, and he pioneered a local um, health insurance scheme for the poor that attracted an awful lot of attention and in typical Indonesian style attracted uh, visitors from local governments uh, from other parts of the country interested to to learn about this new system and in some cases that resulted in similar initiatives uh, being rolled out elsewhere in the country. Later on some similar dynamics emerged at the national level and uh, you know most clearly perhaps when uh, Joko Widodo ran for president in 2014 where he uh, promoted his Healthy Indonesia card, which he touted as a a mechanism for helping to ensure that Indonesians had better access to healthcare than had been the case in the past. Andrew illustrates a very interesting dynamics within the elites of Indonesia. And we could understand this by looking at, one, the Indonesian population become more and more a middle class or at least uh, aspiring middle class who then are difficult to be mobilized using the traditional instrument such as vote buying, such as patronage. Uh, I think uh, both the politician and their business counterparts understand this. They cannot uh, simply win over the election direct election by distributing money. They cannot only rely on small local strongmen to be able to mobilize votes for them. So they they have to find another instrument which is more populist that would then appeal to the broader voters. That's one element that pushes forward this progressive uh, social policy. And there are Uh, individual and groups like uh, Andrew mentioned before, public health practitioners, academics, NGOs, who also see this opportunity to push forward a reform agenda because the electoral system opened the avenue for them to inject those progressive ideas. So even though, as we've seen back in 2011, some of business associations strongly object this universal health insurance scheme because they have to solder part of the premium. But then they also understand that if majority of Indonesians, especially the poor, do not have safety net, then what happened back in 97 and 98 when a huge demonstration occur against a new order regime, that would happen if the lower classes of Indonesia do not have social benefit in health and in education. So afraid of those kind of demonstration will reemerge and will shake their business interests, then they have to embrace progressive ideas. Luki, I've always thought of Indonesia as 
being made up of many avid smokers. But when I looked at the actual data around smoking in Indonesia, I was quite amazed, really. Apparently, 68% of men smoke in Indonesia, but only about 5% of women smoke. There's a lot of smoking going on in Indonesia, and I guess this fits the category within our discussion of an underlying health condition. How has the tobacco industry and smoking fitted into what we're discussing today, the political dynamics around health in Indonesia? If we are talking about reform or controlling the tobacco, it's always become highly disputed and controversial issues. For example, just recently, the Ministry of Finance wanted to increase the sales tax of tobacco. And uh, immediately, the Farmer Association rejected the idea on the ground that it would shift the burden to the farmers because more and more production costs will be suppressed by the tobacco company and they will pay tobacco farmers at the lowest price. And also because there are alternatives of tobacco, especially imported from elsewhere, for example, from Turkey, that also suppressed the selling price of tobacco from uh, the farmers to tobacco company. And therefore, when the government tried to increase the sales tax of tobacco, the immediate response from the farmer association is to reject it. And I, th- I think the tobacco company also have played significant role in trying to mitigate the uh, impact of the restriction of tobacco policy. Now, as I understand it, there are health warnings on cigarette packaging in Indonesia. There have been some progressive moves made and with some success. But how did they actually get through the system? Luki? Uh, this has become a mandatory by law. In 2008, we have the health law which regulates further certain harmful substances, including tobacco. From that time, all tobacco boxes have to fill with the health information or even pictures. And also more and more media, especially TV stations, choose not to air tobacco advertisement because they wanted to avoid being penalized by the media watchdog. Andrew, what has made the tobacco area, cigarettes and the tobacco industry involvement in health politics in Indonesia so intractable? What's your analysis of what's made it so difficult? I think the first point here is just to say that Indonesia does have a real problem with tobacco addiction. Public health scholars and commentators writing about tobacco issues in Indonesia talk about there being a tobacco epidemic. You know, as you noted uh, at the outset, um, the tobacco consumption rates are extremely high and very gendered. Indonesia also has a really significant problem with youth tobacco consumption apparently uh, something in the vicinity of 9% of 10 to 18-year-olds smoke, and that number seems to be going up, not down. Something in the vicinity of 225,000 people die from tobacco-related diseases every year, and tobacco consumption is a key contributor in particular to 
a series of non-communicable diseases that have become particularly or increasingly important as a, a cause of death in Indonesia, such as heart disease and stroke, but it also contributes to infectious disease prevalence, um, and in particular, tuberculosis. So it's a really, really significant problem. Despite that, there aren't many elements of Indonesian society who really have, and this sort of gets to your question about the politics, who have really mobilised to advocate for increased tobacco control. There are a number of NGO groups uh, led by the Indonesian Consumers Foundation and the National Tobacco Control Commission. There are some elements within the Indonesian Doctors Association uh, who've also been quite outspoken on tobacco control issues. There are some academics as well, public health academics, who've advocated publicly for improved tobacco control measures. Uh, Figures in the health ministry, the health ministry has actually been pretty consistent in its support for increased uh, tobacco control measures as well. But they're facing off against, you know, on the one hand, the big cigarette companies. And the big cigarette companies in Indonesia are really, really, really big. They are amongst um, the biggest companies in Indonesia. Every so often, a you know, a magazine or a group like Forbes or or what have you will draw up a list of the, the largest companies in Indonesia and the wealthiest individuals and the cigarette companies and their owners uh, typically feature very, very prominently in those lists. They're said to have incredibly good political connections. When uh, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono was president, um, tobacco control activists used to sort of point to the fact that one cigarette company boss used to drive his Rolls Royce into the um, National Palace and park it there, uh, presumably to make a visit to uh, the president and, I don't know, talk about whatever they needed to talk about. So, you know, you've got incredibly powerful corporate and political interests on the other side of this conflict. And they've been very, very successful, as Luki has already intimated, in mobilising support from key popular constituencies, most prominently tobacco farmers groups. So the tobacco control advocates, you know, who are fairly few in number, reasonably well organised, have good access to the media and some level of international support, particularly from international organisations like the WHO and to a certain extent the World Bank. They're on the weaker side of the ledger uh, when it comes to the, the politics around this issue. Luki, Indonesia has widespread and and very influential religious groupings. Are they part of the progressive side of the political dynamics around health, more communitarian perhaps, or are they more conservative elements uh, in terms of health? Yeah, if we are looking at certain uh, religious groups or networks in Indonesia, if we are discussing about universal health coverage, most of them are in favor for this scheme. They were also uh, support discussion of the bill uh, back in 2010 and 2011. And some of them are quite outspoken at the time, mainly because they uh, understand that this uh, universal health coverage will also protect them from disease. Uh, But if we are talking about the uh, tobacco, it's a different story. 
some religious clerics benefit from the tobacco company. Uh, for example, several tobacco company has their headquarters either in uh, central or in the eastern part of uh, Java, and they are often donate some of their CSR funds to this religious school or uh, religious facilities. So I, I think this become moral uh, dilemma for the clerics to choose whether they have to take a side in the anti-tobacco movement or on the uh, tobacco company side. Andrew, before we finish our conversation and we'll look to the future of health politics in Indonesia as we finish up this conversation, the elephant in the room, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, how has that altered politics around health care and health delivery in Indonesia? We know that there have been very high infection rates, very high death rates. How has that affected politics? How has that affected the political standing of the current president with an election not too far away? It's um, a question I would love to have uh, a really clear uh, answer to, but this is a matter of crystal ball uh, gazing and my crystal ball is rather cloudy. I think it's fairly clear that COVID-19 has served to highlight some of the weaknesses in Indonesia's health policies and in its uh, health system. I don't think it's exposed those problems. They were well known beforehand, but it's really shone a light on them. There have been some quite horrific scenes, particularly during this most recent Delta-driven outbreak, you know, quite harrowing scenes of people um, queuing up outside hospitals seeking treatment and being treated in pickup trucks or uh, uh, in tents or what have you outside um, the hospitals and the numbers that we've uh, been seeing in Indonesia in terms of infections and deaths from COVID-19, which are almost certainly an underestimate in both cases, have been quite alarming. The big question, though, really is, what does all of this mean in terms of uh, the future of of health policy? Um, The Indonesian government has increased health spending quite significantly during the pandemic, as one would expect. One of the provisions of the 2009 health law was that the central government should spend at least 5% of its budget on health, excluding salaries and wages for medical staff. It took quite a long time for the Indonesian government to get to that point. It reached that point, but it's now projected to go up over 6%. um, So a reasonably significant increase as a result of of COVID-19. The big question is really whether that signals a change that will stick in the future or whether it will just prove to be you know, a temporary thing. And once the crisis has abated, once concern about COVID-19 has started to dissipate, will things return to their previous state? And I think the broad judgment that Lukey and I um, have reached in which we articulated in the paper that, that we wrote together and presented at the ANU is that thus far, there isn't really much sign that COVID-19 is proving to be a game changer in terms of the broad alignment of political and social forces in Indonesia. So, you know, COVID-19 is not proving to be a moment in time that is broadly comparable to the Asian financial crisis and the fall of the new order. And that, you know, unfortunately suggests that you know, maybe the future entails a reversion back to 
the sort of state of affairs that was occurring prior to COVID-19, which was that, you know, there was some improvement happening unevenly, some signs of increased commitment to health on the part of the government, but, you know, balking at really, really fundamental change. Lukey, your views on this. How has President Wododo survived greater opprobrium with some of the terrible scenes we've seen in Indonesia and the high infection rates, the high death rates. How has the president escaped greater opprobrium? And how do you think it was going to play, if it's not a game changer, how is the pandemic going to play into future elections? First of all, the Joko Widodo has in the second term by constitution, he cannot run in the 2024 Therefore, uh, there is little electoral incentive for the current administration to use uh, COVID as political leverage. But we can uh, see and compare with other countries. COVID-19 is certainly a different kind of disease that should be handled differently. We try harder, for example, to push forward a number of vaccines. Now, at this point, we can only secure 100 million of Indonesians to be vaccinated. We still have a long way to go, another 170 million people, more or less. At least uh, 120 million Indonesians need to be vaccinated in order to reach the herd immunity. The second thing is that we see that the government is juggling between health and economics. We know that, as we've seen elsewhere, uh, also in in Australia, for example, many people suffer not only socially, because we have to maintain social distancing, but also suffer economically, because many of firms or companies have to rescale their business operation, have to reduce their labor, So uh, the government also see this uh, pandemic actually uh, bring two fronts of battles at the same time, how to uh, isolate this virus and how to protect the community. But on the other hand, how to at least make the business still going on. I don't see and I don't think any leader in, in, in the world can able to solve this puzzle smoothly. But yesterday, uh, less than 2,000 new cases emerged in Indonesia out of 270 million population. So this is good signs for us that the uh, government and the community were able to work hand in hand to protect the society, try to protect the family. And try to be more productive at the same time. Luki, Andrew, thank you so much for being with us on Ear to Asia. Thank you, Peter. My pleasure. Our guests have been Professor Andrew Rosser of Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne and Dr Luki Jani of Universitas Indonesia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. 
This episode was recorded on the 21st of September, 2021. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. EarToAsia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.